2: As we anticipate the likely dissolution of reproductive rights in the Supreme Court, I've invited two guests today uniquely positioned as writers working to broaden the recognition and expansion of reproductive rights, or as they might more aptly be named, freedoms. Shelley Oria has just produced an anthology of writings on reproductive freedom that is available now from McSweeney's books in partnership with the Brigid Alliance. Spanning nearly every genre of writing, the collection greatly broadens the parameters for how we might speak of reproductive freedoms and fight for their continuation, even in this particularly bleak time. She is joined today by the novelist Kirsten Valdez Quaid, author most recently of the novel The Five Wounds. It was an honor to talk to Shelley and Kirsten about their hopes and fears for a future after Roe vs. Wade and the potential for writers to enter the fray as defenders of the right to abortion and also issuers of a clarion call for the many other natural rights that are being trampled upon. Please consider supporting. I know what's best for you by purchasing it directly from McSweeney's or your local bookstore. The work within is moving, empathetic, horrifying, touching, and unforgettable. With that, I bring you Shelley Oria and Kirsten Valdez-Quaid. In May of this year, a draft opinion on the Dobbs versus Jackson women's health case written by Justice Samuel Alito was leaked to the press. The brazen decision appeared to indicate that 50 years of the Roe versus Wade precedent protecting a woman's right to choose whether to have a child would be entirely struck down, recreating the long history in the U.S. of women seeking dangerous, often life-threatening drugs or procedures to end a pregnancy outside of the care of a doctor. In Alito's argument, the incredible burden physical, emotional, and financial loaded upon a person who was forced to carry a child counted for nothing when weighed against the potential life of an embryo. This was forecast by Justice Amy Coney Barrett's astonishing claim in oral arguments that there was in fact no burden on a woman carrying a child, as that woman could simply drop the baby off at a fire station under certain asylum laws. Awaiting what seems sure to be this devastating opinion has much of the country on edge. Will we return to an era in which an unwanted pregnancy would mean a future of lost potential or even injury or bodily harm? On today's episode, I'll be talking to the editor of a new collection of writings, poems, fiction, nonfiction, comics, plays, and letters that take on this question— but also the much broader and more textured idea of reproductive freedom. The collection, titled I Know What's Best for You, Stories on Reproductive Freedom, is edited by Shelley Oria, and the list of contributors is a wonderful who's who of exciting contemporary writers, including Tommy Orange, R.O. Kwan, Alison Epoch, Kristen Arnett, as well as essays by practitioners in reproductive health. I'm lucky enough to have one of those contributors, the novelist Kirsten Valdez Quaid, join Shelley to talk about the importance of this collection and of literature more broadly at this strange and frightening moment in the country's history with limiting reproductive freedom. Shelley Oria is the author of the collection of short stories, New York 1, Tel Aviv 0, and the editor of Indelible in the Hippocampus, writings from the Me Too movement, as well as the award-winning digital novella, Clean. Kirsten Valdez Quaid is the author of the novel The Five Wounds and the short story collection Night at the Fiestas, which was the winner of the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Prize. She teaches at Princeton University. Welcome to the show, Shelley and Kirsten.
0: Hi, Chris. Thank you for having us. Thanks so
1: much. What a joy to be here with both of you.
2: I was anticipating this episode very much as I, like so many, are incredibly nervous about what this Supreme Court opinion means. But I'm also very aware that it is but one sort of small moment in a long history of the repression and suppression of reproductive freedom. Shelley, could you talk a little bit about how the idea of this collection came into being? It was clearly in process long before the leak of the Supreme Court um, case Dobbs. What drove you to create I Know What's Best for You?
0: Oh, yeah, long before. We've been working on this project for uh, close to three years now. So I curated and edited, um, as you briefly mentioned, another anthology uh, for McSweeney's title, Indelible in the Hippocampus, writings from the Me Too movement. Um, and so I think I was just about to go on tour with that book when Carol Davis, who's one of the co founders of the Bridget Alliance, and I can say a little bit more about that organization later, um, started a conversation with Amanda Yuli the publisher of McSweeney's, about what would essentially become this book. And Amanda asked me to meet with Carol and asked me if I would take on this project. Um, and that's sort of where it started. And you know, there's a way in which when people uh, ask me this question, like, what drove me to initiate this project. And I say, uh, I was invited, I was asked to do it. And Mm -hmm. it sort of sounds like a silly um, answer. I always think of, you know, when I used to teach, I taught for many years at Pratt and I kind of quickly had to learn not to ask the question of students of like, what made you take this class? Because it, <laughs> it would always be at least two dudes that were like, it's at 7.30 p.m. and that It <laughs> just feels so silly. So this answer or feels Or it's oh, a God. requirement. <laughs> right, even worse, exactly. Um, and so it sort of feels like, and I, I keep answering, giving that answer anyway, just because it's the, the truth. But also it occurred to me that I think it actually points to something a little bit um, deeper or more important, which is the responsibility that publishers have and that in turn editors have in shaping our conversation because I think, Mm -hmm. you know, I wouldn't have um, made this book had I not been asked by a publisher to do so. And I think many of the um, books contributors, and Kirsten can say later if that's true in her case or not, but I know for many of the contributors, they weren't working on the piece that they ended up making for this book. They weren't necessarily mm. thinking or writing into this topic. And it was the invitation that made them do so. So I don't know if that totally answers your question, but that's that's kind of the the very big, the inception story or the beginning of the inception story of this project. It, um, it definitely and, you know, does. Because, and
2: and I I think it's really interesting because in my mind I was thinking oh fantastic that a writer is going to you know engender this this conversation but it, it certainly makes me think a lot more about this um, the onus on publishers which I think is it, mm-hmm. in McSweeney's case here a really it's a boon um, to them that they were that they started the very beginning of this conversation which you obviously brought to fruition um when you think about um a a kind of in a perfect world the audience for this collection um Mm -hmm. do you think who who is it and is there any chance it finds its way into someone who holds um a, a very different idea or opinion on these matters
0: that's such an interesting question um sort of before even answering it i kind of um feel drawn to saying you know as a writer i also have a private practice that I've had for many years as a a creativity coach. And so as a creativity coach and as a writer, I steer, can we, on the show? Oh, I yeah, like go I, right ahead. Okay, please. <laughs> I hear the far clear of this kind of <laughs> audience type conversations um, or questions because I think to most creatives, that's a pretty tricky question. You frame the question as like in a perfect world and like, please do take me to that world. We do mm, not. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is not where we live. But even if I try to imagine that world, I don't know that even in that perfect world, maybe it's just a failure of my own imagination. It's very hard to imagine a world in which um, this book Changes the mind of someone, you know, um, holding photos of, uh, aborted fetuses, um, in the faces of, of women outside abortion clinics. Like that mm-hmm. is very hard for me to imagine. I have to say, I don't, um, think that we that we need to imagine that or that we need for that to happen. I think that there's so many people on quote-unquote our side. There's so many people who I think at their core believe um, in choice, believe in um, access, believe in a world in which women should be able to access um, free reign over their own bodies and make decisions and have bodily autonomy and are not necessarily as active in pursuing that. And I think there's also... Uh, a gender divide here, and I think, uh, generally speaking, it's it's an awful generalization, but women and non-binary people have been on the whole, um, more active in that space. Mm -hmm. And, um, Mm -hmm. I think, no offense, Chris, but I think, no, no, I think it's, I think it's
2: probably quantitatively (laughs) true or definitely quantitatively true.
0: Yeah. And yet it affects all of us. Um, and that's certainly something. So I do think that there is a chance of, uh, this book and the pieces in this book reaching a lot of, um, men. Um, and that's certainly something I was aware of, um, in curating. And we have, um, a couple of, of, um, contributors who are, who are men, who are cis men, um, in the book, and certainly something I was thinking of. And I do think that there's uh, a chance of these works reaching people who believe in in this in general, but aren't necessarily doing much about it, and that that they can feel more energized, at least in the perfect world that you set up for this question, right. that can happen. And that's that is a, a very happy
2: thought for me. The subtitle of the collection is Stories on Reproductive Freedom. I think definitions are incredibly important, especially when it comes to human rights. Could I get both of you to define reproductive freedom as you see it?
1: Sure. I mean, for, for me, it's very simple. It it comes down to bodily autonomy. It comes down to people being able to make choices for themselves and for their families and for their lives Um, that, you know, and and having having control over their bodies, being a yes,
0: I want this or no, I don't want this. I I definitely echo the sentiment. I think it's hard. It is hard to to give sort of a clear, succinct um, definition, because I think um, we can talk more about this, but I think just as, as much as choice is important, it's also become um, almost a problematic word and just how lacking it is in the context of, of today's America. And so I like the word freedom because for me it's sort of um, choice or rights plus access, because, you know, if a woman um, for, for a woman to, or any pregnant person to be able to actually um, execute Choice over their own body. And of course, you know, we're talking about reproductive freedom in ways that extend far beyond pregnancy itself. And so, any reproductive choice to be able to execute that choice, um, one has to have more than the right to do so. And if one is, you know, um, living in a situation where one doesn't have health care or one Mm -hmm. doesn't have an abortion clinic in their state or they have one or they have one that is 15 hours away and they're not able to, quit their job or leave their job for a few days and afford travel in order to get the care that they need, then what does the choice even mean? And so then we don't actually have freedom. And so the freedom, however, I would define it would be a far broader definition that would in- encapsulate or incorporate um, the concept of access.
1: Adding to that, though, is to to have... Um you know supports in place to help people who decide they do want to have children you know affordable mm-hmm. care, affordable child mm-hmm. care. um you know because we see often the the very people who are dead set on um denying people the, the <laughs> reproductive freedom um are the very same people who are voting against you know free and reduced school lunch for example um you know it, daycare centers and high schools and uh, you know all of these mm-hmm. things would would allow people to still have make a future for themselves with with um children if that's what they decide
2: yeah, Absolutely. that 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 word choice, um, as you say, is is so problematic because it makes it seem like it's a it's an on off switch. I choose it yes. or I don't. Um, and then there's nothing that happens afterwards, and we don't have to consider mm-hmm. that. And and that reproductive freedom can extend out. It can be about access, but it's also, you know, the freedom to choose to have a child and then be supported in such a way that it is not such a terrible burden or end up hurting that child by the very nature of the structures that don't allow them health care or food or or safe housing. And uh, I I feel like the the other side has done such a good job limiting the conversation. It's about a woman outside of an abortion clinic who makes a decision and then it's either she's bad or she's good. And then you're done with the conversation and pro-life as the their kind of self-titled name for the the opposition here, it leaves opponents only with the option of being pro-death, should they oppose draconian Mm -hmm. laws. But it also means that reproductive freedom is couched only in terms of abortion rather than in the breadth of natural Mm -hmm. rights. Do you see, do both of you see these stories, essays and poems as capable of expanding the category um, so that people see reproductive freedom in its broad range?
0: it's the question. Sorry, I keep commenting on, on your questions before answering them, but, and they're so, I I love these questions. Um, they're so, they're so thoughtful and they're making me think. And my, my immediate response here is that considering this is tricky for my sleep because Mm -hmm. ever since the, I mean, this sort of making, making, working on this book has been, um, all kinds of challenging emotionally and I've been stressed out, honestly, for a long time now, but Ever since the the draft was leaked, which is several weeks now, I've really just been not sleeping that much. And it feels uh ridiculous like my body is convinced that this book can and should save america Uh, i don't know and i've been trying to really explain to my body that 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 is not the case um and while i would love to live in a world where books have that effect Mm. that is not this world and we can go to sleep um and so again like a question that's like can these stories change how we define reproductive freedom i'm immediately like chris i'm not gonna sleep for three nights now um so i don't know that Can. Um, but I do know that the choice, uh, speaking of choice, the board feels uh, even more uh, loaded now after we've sort of unpacked it in this conversation. But um, my choice to um, to expand it as much as I did in curating this book was very, very deliberate and intentional um, and sort of alludes to exactly what, um, or points to exactly what you were alluding to now um, in your question about how important it is for and for all kinds of reasons that I can say much more about to expand our conversations. Um, it is about the how successful the other side has been and sort of pinpointing us in this way in rhetoric, um, mm-hmm. which has such a deep um, effect. Effect on on how people think and and uh, how people vote, honestly. But also, I think for me, this goes back to the inception story that I touched on earlier in our conversation, where I was really on the heels of making this other book that was a Me Too book, Indelible in the Hippocampus, when I took on this project. And 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 with Indelible, you know, I started making that book days after the Harvey scandal broke. Uh, I was sort of midway uh through it in edits with writers when the Kavanaugh hearings happened, which ended up inspiring the title of that book. If people um remember this from the from Dr. Ford's testimony, Indelible on the Hippocampus, and had writers, you know, changing their pieces in response to that. And then I was touring with that book uh, about a year after that, when that was the point in time when I was invited to work on this project. So I sort of, all to say, I had this kind of overview of what was happening in terms of our Me Too conversation, which was obviously incredibly impactful and powerful and really sort of um, culture changing and, and mind changing. And I felt that we were keeping it so narrow and sort of failing to expand it um, beyond, you know, sort of the list of men and and the idea of, you know, as if if we punished all of them, we would have fixed the -hmm. fundamental issue here. To the origin of your question, that was a deliberate choice that felt very, very important to me to broaden the conversations, to encourage a sort of creation of collective neural pathways, if you will, Mm -hmm. that um, that are making these connections that aren't um, that for us to not to have the reproductive freedom conversation as a limited abortion conversation that focuses on one or two aspects, but rather to expand our minds um, and our conversations into a much, much broader space.
2: Kirsten, uh, wh- where do you fall on this?
1: You know, I think I think in some ways um, there are two different conversations happening. I mean, you you open the question with this discussion of the pro life movement and how successful they've been with with messaging, and it's absolutely true. I mean, it's brilliant messaging. Um, I mean, I think the 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 tricky thing is that literature and you see it in this in this anthology literature is about nuance and contradiction and about holding opposing thoughts mm-hmm. and it's you know whereas the the language of politics is about simplicity and flattening of complication mm-hmm. and so i don't it's it's hard to see those two modes of communication, um, working together. Um, and I think that's, that's sometimes where the left runs into trouble. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I, I believe in literature, I, you know, with my <laughs> whole heart and, you know, I've, I've given my life to it. Um, and I think it's, it, it the the very nuance and complication can be really difficult um, to wrangle in in the political realm. <laughs>
0: I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that perhaps maybe I'm mishearing you, Kirsten, but for me, the conclusion is the opposite, like to me, because of exactly that reason, I've been talking a lot about exactly that issue that you, that you point to, which is the sort of um, the necessary level of even dogma, that's maybe a problematic word, but at least let's say of clarity of message and goal, when it comes to anything in the political sphere, any campaign, any, you know, um, any slogan, any, any um, push for legislation the it's those ingredients of clarity and definition of goal are, are true necessary ingredients in, in those formulas for success and it's true that art and literature is about the exact opposite of that it lives in nuance I think for that exact reason that to me is why we need it and That to me is where it could serve and so the question often sounds to our ears like naive right like can art change the world? And, you know, we all were so, we've gotten so used to hearing all the like, oh, book, no no one reads books anymore. Like all of, and in fact, I think... First of all, I think it's naive to think that they don't. I think, you know, of course, that that content shapes our thinking every day for everyone in different ways. So better just assume that it is changing the world and think about how we're doing that and get get in there, get involved. Um, but, but more to the point, like, I think that is why art and literature is so important in these conversations, because it can hold that nuance and complexity that the, in spaces more... Um, Narrowly defined within the political sphere, that could just that just cannot happen.
1: We we've seen how powerful stories of individuals are in this very conversation. I mean, in Ireland, mm-hmm. Poland, um, you know, individual stories of individual women have really um, you know done a lot to make these issues come to the forefront. And you know, in Ireland, to to make real change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Not not yet in Poland. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, I, I do believe that that story
2: can be so powerful. I was just going to say that um, the the theorist Jacques Rancière has a has an idea about literature's participation in democracy, in that it mm-hmm. is uh, allows for um, people's voices to to have a, a a space and a landscape that they can't have in the political sphere, and so that it's a it's a part of democracy that's yeah. necessary along with the kind of. Um, you know Orwell's call for absolute clarity of language in in political action and those two exist together in part because literature can um, or creative writing writ large um, can allow a census of people who are not counted otherwise
0: I'm thinking of you know Kirsten I'm thinking of your story as such a great, your story in the book is such a great example of of the nuance and complexity and how they can be achieved and executed perfectly, honestly. Um, and that's, you know, for anyone who hasn't read it yet, um, is the story of, and of course, Kirsten, you can correct me or, or re redefine what I'm about to say, but it's um, the story of a woman... Um, girl slash woman who comes from a religious background um and is raped and keeps the pregnancy and it explores um that experience and and her relationship with her son and up until i think at the end of the story he's four um and in the beginning of the story she i believe is um we in the in the backstory when this all happens she's um 15 or 16 i think and you know, I think just the both the the beautiful, rich complexity of of what that mother-child relationship is. I think we at once feel um, her even repulsion from him, and there's such a, a honest way that the story explores that. And because of what he is to her and represents to her, and we feel her love for him at the same time, and. And on top of all of that, there's one of my favorite things about the story is there's a sort of thread so well and light, with such a light hand and yet so effective about potentially an eating disorder, or at least just the complexity of her relationship to her body in that other context that, that so many women are familiar with, and um, and just managing to do that is kind of an afterthought that the reader is left with, maybe not even consciously knowing that that, that is that, that had an effect. So, you know, that to me is exactly like we could never plan a campaign that achieves all of that.
2: Mm-hmm. But we
0: can write a story that has um, that gives voice to to that human complexity.
2: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? Kirsten, was Christians in the catacombs a pre-existing story, or did you write it for this collection?
1: You know, I think I'd written maybe a paragraph of it before Shelley invited me to contribute. Um, so really, it was it was written for this collection. And um, when I first conceived of it, I. I I thought of it as a horror story. I wanted to try my hand at writing a horror story. And you, know, you hear so, so many horror stories that come out of, of women, people being forced to bear children. Um, you know, there's, there's stories of, people dying in childbirth or dying of complications of you know the babies being born with horrific and excruciating congenital conditions that and then they die soon after I mean we've we 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 know about so many of these horror stories um but one horror story uh, the uh, and one that I I think about so much when I think about these issues is um one that I think is maybe more ordinary I mean what what do you do when you are tasked with raising a child who you know you you didn't want to have for Mm -hmm. various reasons I mean this this child is a reminder of um her her rape and um and What do you do with with I mean, at one point she says she she cannot love the child and she loves the child. And Mm -hmm. that that to me is a is a horror story to not be able to give a child the love that every child deserves.
2: And there's the thinking about it as, um, you know, in those choice terms doesn't begin to touch the, the lifetime in which you will have to deal with these contradictions in which your character will love and not love and be traumatized by and enriched by but have that um, just intertwined internal conflict forever um, it doesn't it doesn't end at the choice it doesn't end at the birth it doesn't end in childhood and i and i think mm-hmm. that because of the way you you structure the story, we get a sense of how that long line is beginning to to string itself out.
1: I mean, this is something that um, that character Lauren will have to and and her son mm-hmm. will have to deal with a million times a day, every day. <laughs> um, that that sense that she she had a different life planned for herself.
2: And the, one of the moments in the story that I was really struck by is when she, you know, in this particular parallel world, there is no legal uh, abortion in Arizona, and she comes to the conclusion that she was part of that by participating in, in pro-life protests. How did you decide to have that be yet another sort of complication to how she would feel about this? <laughs>
1: As a fiction writer I'm always drawn to characters who hold different beliefs than I hold and um so yes Lauren Lauren believes wholeheartedly that a fetus um a, a blastus is an embryo she she believes that that is a person with a soul and and she you know, protested abortion because of those beliefs. So I think that was, uh, that was one point of, of interest for me is that, you know, what, what is it to truly believe that? Because, I mean, that's one of the things that makes the debate so, so difficult is I, and, and makes me sort of feel for the other side, which is if you believe that, then yeah, mm-hmm. abortion is murder. And there isn't anything I can say that can, can shift that. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I was interested in starting from that, that point. Um, and also to, for, for this character to, to, have to grapple with the real consequences. I didn't understand when I wrote this story. I mean, I said it in the near future. I think there's an allusion to Frozen Four. Um, <laughs> so, <you> know,
2: <laughs> that was part of the horror story for me.
1: <laughs> exactly. But I, I didn't understand how very near future it was. Mm. I mean, I think it's I was, prescient. I mean, it's, it's like tomorrow. Um, and that, that to me is just chilling. Um, I think, I think, you know, (laughs) so many things in the last, uh, you know, six years, uh, I've, I've, I've thought that certain rights were more secure than they were. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and I, it's foolish that I continue to be as stunned as I am when it turns out they're not.
2: Shelley, your story, We Bled All Winter, is about the interaction of sex, desire, violence, and also religion. It does incredible work showing the textures and complications of the ideas we hold around choice. How did you imagine this nexus of all the different complications as you were um, coming up with the germ of this story?
0: Well, the inception story of of the story it's it's almost like the opposite of my my arc or trajectory with with the previous book. The whole project kind of started from from the story um, that I wrote for that book, which started a conversation, which led to to making a Me Too book. Here, it was the opposite. I I sort of waited to have basically most of the manuscript um, that would become the book pre-edits, but just to have a very clear shape of the book so that I could look at what it was doing um, and compare it to what I wanted the book to do, which was admittedly um, a lot. <laughs> it was, it's was it been a very, very mm-hmm. ambitious project from the start. Um, and I had, as, as you mentioned earlier, I wanted the book to, to go far beyond abortion and look at um, all possible aspects of reproductive freedom. So, you know, Fertility and, um, and child freeness, and contraception and surrogacy, et cetera, et cetera. And motherhood, too, as, as Kirsten mentioned, and that's certainly in the book as well. Um, and I had this whole long list of sort of um, aspects of life, especially life in contemporary America, that intersect or interact with reproductive freedom in ways that I think are compelling and important, too. Um, from climate change to racism, and and on and on, and so really, I kind of waited to have um, a shape of a book that I felt good about and then made a very bizarre um, and impossible feeling at the time literary prompt for myself, which was a list of things that I felt like we weren't yet doing or not doing enough for my taste. And so it had, for instance, uh, queerness was probably first on that list because I'd invited um, probably about half of the contributors or close to that on this list, identify as queer. And yet, of course, you know, I know as a queer writer myself, many many, many times what they write about isn't queerness or doesn't center queerness. So that ended up happening a lot here. And at the time, I only had two pieces in the book that centered queerness in some way. Um, And so, for instance, that was on the list. Um, I tried to get uh, a lot more cis men writers, as again, we, we touched on that earlier in our conversation, and ended up with fewer than I had hoped. So I wanted to write a male point of view, which of course, isn't the same, but still felt important to me. Um, I, we mentioned sort of the intersection of sexual violence and reproductive freedom in kirsten's story and especially because we were always thinking of this book as a sibling book to indelible that felt like something that i wanted a lot more resonance for in the book than we did so that was on my list um as an israeli whenever i can sort of put a spotlight on the palestinian plight in some way that's that always feels like a moral obligation to me and uh, i do that a little bit in my letters with hannah Lilith asadi but um uh, I wanted to do more of that. So I had basically this strange list of like queerness, uh, sexual violence, a male point of view, the Palestinian plight go you know
2: there's i'm surprised it didn't over list. overwhelm you i'm impressed that that I'm didn't sh- I, it
0: did it It did at the time i mean i think you know there's a reason this story is uh in three sections and <laughs> three points of view because yeah it did feel for a while like how do i construct a narrative that does all of these things uh, but it also felt creatively very exciting to figure out that puzzle. It took it took a while to put that puzzle together, um, all those puzzle pieces. But that's that's really the kind of most honest answer to your question. That it isn't so much as I didn't come into it thinking like, oh, how can I? What's in the, what's the nexus of you know violence? And it was more like, what do I want the book to do that it isn't yet doing or not doing enough? And how can mm-hmm. I make my story add those elements to to the mix?
2: You, um, uh, you've hinted at, at this a little bit, but I'm very interested at this, you know, array of contributors that you've gathered, which has professional and amateur writers working in, in every genre, I, I suppose, um, mm-hmm. and as well as a doula writing for it. Can you talk about how you made your selections ultimately and how specifically you instructed contributors to interpret the theme?
0: Yeah, it was, a, it was a fascinating and very exciting um, process, I have to say. Um, I knew everything I just mentioned. I knew kind of going in that I wanted that breadth. Um I also knew, you know, again, we talked about the kind of timeline. I was just on the heels of doing um, a lot of events and interviews with the previous book. And in those conversations, I talked about the multi-genre aspect of the other book, which had fiction on fiction and poetry and why I had made that choice and why that felt important to me. So I thought, you know, if I'm talking so much about multi-genre, Let's make it. Let's make it matter. Let's make it count. Let's make it even more multi-genre. So that was also at the very beginning. I knew I wanted to go beyond fiction, non-fiction, poetry, and indeed, as you mentioned before, we also have three plays in the book. We have a comic in the book and photography um, by the incredible Rachel Isaac Riffith. Um So, so that was sort of in terms of my own kind of goals going into it. And then the way I went about it, I think I reached out to over a hundred. Um, artists and writers I knew and whose work I knew in some cases, because I knew they had a passion for the topic and they had made work on the topic. But I have to say, in most cases, I just reached out to people whose work I admired and I figured if they would connect with the topic enough to write something or make something toward it, then it, it will likely be very powerful. And that's indeed what happened. So I think out of the hundred plus that I talked to I think we ended up getting um, just over 60 maybe submissions and we were only able to to, um, feature about half of those. Um, And then, you know, just in the process of, I think I mostly reached out to writers and artists, but it's just when you're in this kind of process, you end up talking about it and thinking about it and into it so much. And then someone might mention like, oh, you know, my friend was a surrogate. And I was like, well, I, I would love to talk to that person. Um, and that ended up becoming the piece that we have from Carrie Bornstein um, in the book, for instance. Um, the doula you referenced is Kate Novotny. I invited Erin Williams, um, who's a writer and who I was connected through via my agent, and she I wanted to make a comic on this and that that was one of my happiest days on this project because again i was just so committed to the idea of multi-genre and then i was like a comic we're gonna get to have a comic in this book i was very excited about that and then um i think aaron is friends with kate and they've done work together in the past and because this comic um sort of investigates. Um, again, it's it's one of the pieces in the book that that looks at the intersection or the meeting point between racism and reproductive freedom and how mm-hmm. white supremacy has found its way to the reproductive lives of so many women um, in this country and how sometimes that is going on without us even fully realizing or having the language for it. And so in a comic that explores that, I think Erin felt um, that she could really use Kate's perspective and not as someone who's worked very directly in that space for so
2: long. Mm-hmm. I, I, I found the comic to be in, incredibly impactful, uh, especially as it sort of begins as one thing and transitions into this understanding of what uh, what choice means, particularly for non-white, um people and with uh you know a reproductive system that always is casting their choices as, as bad or wrong or irresponsible, and then giving them very little options in terms of resources, therefore making the bad and awful choice that they've supposedly made more difficult than it would be otherwise. Kirsten, what what did you think of Aaron Williams and Kate Novotny's um, comic and their generic form of approaching this, and also this idea of uh, reproductive freedom as often hinged on the notion of white supremacy or the the failure of structures f- of reproductive freedom for non-white people.
1: I mean, I thought it I thought it was so beautifully done. I mean, as you pointed out, um, you know, when I first began reading it, I I thought I was going to be reading one particular story, and then it. <coughs> It turns um, and and becomes this broader commentary, and I I thought that was it was done so skillfully, um, and I think it's such an important uh, such an important part of the conversation. I mean, particularly as as we are seeing the the disparity in in you know. Maternal health outcomes and and um, infant mortality in you know among non-white populations, and I, I was I was really really impressed with um, just the the craft of of that piece. Um, And, and the way that, yeah, it becomes this very, it it begins as the specific story of this white woman and then, and then broadens out and, and is, yeah, I thought it was very skillfully done.
2: Yeah, that that turn that happens. I I, I was mm-hmm. struck by it, surprised by it, and then thought it it, it worked so beautifully and its um, synergy with the, the the images the of the comic, uh, and it, it it's lasting for me for sure. One of the other you know generic experiments that happens in it, Shelley, is your um, epistolary work uh, with a Palestinian writer, Hannah Lilith Asadi and it's a it's an opportunity for the two of you to talk about the choice to be childless and um I, I just found it fascinating. And I'm I'm wondering what it was like talking back and forth with this friend um, who was, I believe she was pregnant when you were um when you were sharing letters about your choice to be childless and and in now in the context of the likely fall of Roe v. Wade, how how do you see that interaction between the two of you and those letters?
0: Yeah, that was um It was a powerful exchange for me and I think for Hannah as well. It's also of such a different time. It's very early, um, early pandemic days, New York City. Um, And that's very, uh, like, I can't think about that particular conversation outside of the context of, of that time. And I think Hannah was experiencing her pregnancy. And yes, she, she was pregnant at the time. She's actually pregnant now. Um, not the same pregnancy. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, it would be a very long one.
0: <laughs> yeah, it would be a very long one. We made that joke at the Strand. But yeah, I think it was in a way, you know, I'd mentioned climate change earlier. That's another thread in the book that several of the pieces take on, some a lot more kind of directly than our letters. But in our letters and in part inspired by the timing and the pandemic. Um, that's that's a sort of presence in, in both of our letters to each other is thinking about um, what is happening to the world that felt, you know, you couldn't not think about it. Whatever your views are, whatever uh, your interpretation of reality, at that point in time, we were, all in, we we're all quarantined. We we're all afraid to go out um, and breathe air outside. It was, it was those days, you know? And so kind of thinking about bringing... A child into the world in those days, you couldn't, I think, um, think of think of that choice um, outside of, of that context. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's a letter that I think I reference in my letter to her, um, an earlier conversation that we had in which she asked me about my choice to be child-free and, and was it a choice? And I said yes, but we didn't kind of fully go into it in person at that bar pre-pandemic, it's sort of a memory that we both come back to in these letters. And then really the letters become the exploration. She asked me because at the time she was trying to figure out if she wanted to remain child-free or if she wanted to have a child. Um, and, and sort of both her side of the question and her answer and how that answer morphed. And then my own side of that question and how I came to to understand that answer is not a sort of black and white one moment, you know, Um, epiphany, but rather a sort of infinite number of moments that reveal to me what I think I'd always known. Um, Mm -hmm. That's what kind of these letters are doing. Um, And yeah, I do think it's, you know, it's hard for me to Put into words, but of course, my choice to be child free feels very different now. When I know that so many people um, are who might want that choice, for whom that choice might be right, are not going to have this choice in reality. Mm-hmm. And the reality that we're in, um, it it weighs. It weighs quite heavily. Too.
2: What do you? I, I'm, I'm interested. This is a a big sort of ending question for for both of you that will will ask of you for um, ask some recommendations, but also some thinking about what is the the onus and the burden um, on on both of you being writers, and and how do you see that that burden changing in the post row world? And do you feel like your writing will perforce have to shift, have to be doing different work than it might otherwise? And then I wonder if you um, would share some writers beyond those collected here that you look to for ways of pushing back against the expanding legal regime of controlling reproduction.
1: You know, I think I see my role as a writer I, I I I don't I don't know that it's it's it will change in a post row world. I mean I think um, I'm still going to be interested in issues of justice and inequality and. Um, and that will come out in my fiction um i've I've been interested in these questions of reproductive choice in um, both of my um, books and that was when I thought that, 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 that um, Roe v way was safe mm-hmm. um, because it was clear you know even even when it was safe as as we've already said um, the real, the real issue has always been access and who who can mm-hmm. actually um, end a pregnancy if they don't if they don't want to have a child um so i i imagine that i mean i i see my role as a writer is just to keep exploring these issues and and not just of reproductive choice but you know inequality in general you know we live in such a flawed world and there is so much suffering everywhere and and joy as well and I think that you know I'm interested in
0: exploring those themes in my work yeah I echo echo every word um I think what I'm feeling uh, sort of drawn to with this question is, is reflecting on what our world is going to look like, um, in this, in this context. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of the, the Bridget Alliance, who's, uh, the McSweeney's partner in this, in this project, in this book. Um, which is a nonprofit that helps arrange and and funds travels for pregnant people across the country who need to, you know, to travel for abortion care. And I think that not only the Bridget Alliance, but every organization, every nonprofit like it is, is the future, right? Like if, if you're, if we're thinking about the reality, at least of the next few years, um, there's going to be a lot more. I mean, this organization exists and other like it exists because this need has, um, because we have been in this crisis for so long, it's not in fact new, right? I think so many of us are kind of waking up to the severity of it, and certainly things have gotten uh, far worse lately. But you know, when I started working on this project in 2019, that year, I wanna say it's close to 50 laws um, in something like almost 20 states, um, that passed just that year alone restricting restricting abortion in different ways. So that's, you know, that's three years ago. Um, we had escalated to that point by then. When you think of the Dobbs case, the fact that the clinic involved from Mississippi is the last remaining clinic in that state, that alone tells you just how um, how long of an arc this crisis has had. And so it is clear that that. That where we are on that arc now, the, the sort of further setback and honestly devastation that I think we're about to face means that so many more people will have to to travel in this country um, to get the abortion care that they need, and of course that many of them just won't be able to. And so, when you asked us what is what does the future look like, um, that's kind of where where my mind goes to, and. Um, and thank god for organizations like the bridge of Alliance to be honest um and and as a writer i just hope to as a writer as an editor as a curator i hope to um to have the the privilege of responding to that and to feel a responsibility of responding to that not only mm-hmm. to this crisis but to the changing landscape that i think will result
2: and are there um, oh and
0: as for writers yeah. yeah um the first thing that comes to mind for me is um sort of connects to what we talked about earlier and the responsibility of, of men in this conversation, of cis men in this conversation. I'm thinking of Peter Ho Davies, um, his book, uh, A Lie Someone Told You About Yourself, which is a novel from the point of view of a man whose wife had an abortion and kind of his experience in it and um, kind of his process and post that, post that abortion. And as part of that, he goes, uh, that narrator goes and volunteers in an abortion clinic and kind of is uh, changed and his understanding of that changes through that experience. Um, so I don't know, that's the first kind of example. That's the first place my mind went to because I think we need so much more of that. And I think the conversation can be enriched and, um, in many ways.
2: And Kirsten, do you have uh, a writer or writers in mind?
1: Well, I was going to also talk about Peter Hodevi's
2: um, <laughs> I, I love him, so I'm glad <laughs> that he's being talked about.
1: <laughs> and, I mean, that, that novel is, I mean, it's this slender, powerful, hilarious, yeah. and absolutely devastating book. Um and 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 you know when I think about when I think about bodily autonomy and and choice um I'm I'm also thinking about queer and trans writers. Um mm-hmm. um Tori Peters Detransition Baby um mm-hmm. it, you know is is so much about these these questions of of Reproductive freedom, um, and um, one one story in particular um, in um, Lydia Conklin's new collection, Rainbow Rainbow, um, yeah, really addresses these issues. Um, the the story Laramie Times, um, and and there are others as well. Um, their their comic strip lesbian cattle dogs, <laughs> um, it's a very funny and lighthearted Um, take on on. This, but um, without dealing with you know abortion per se, but you know I think the the more we read of people whose whose bodily autonomy is under attack constantly right now, um, the the better off we all are
2: well thank you both so much for such a rich and i think really necessary conversation and i hope that i know what's best for you will gain um just an enormous readership uh as it as it goes out into the world at a time when we couldn't need it more um so thank you both
1: thank you so much chris thank you this was really really a pleasure
2: take care Well, that's all from me for today. My enormous thanks to Shelley and Kirsten for their passion on this subject of enormous importance for all people. Their recommendations are available on the website at burnedbybooks.com. There you can also find a link to buy I Know What's Best for You from Buffalo Street Books, as well as links to all of our previous episodes. Next week, I'll be speaking with Professor Elizabeth Anker of the George Washington University about her book, Ugly Freedoms, and how that term helps us understand the apocalypse of gun violence in the U.S. Until then, this has been Burned by Books.